Smartcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. With the Baker's Plus card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win, earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. And welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show, featuring Jason Zook. In uncertain times, we must change our focus and priorities. This show will highlight social justice issues with the goal of expanding minds and increasing unity, love, and mutual respect for ourselves and our planet. We support the Black Lives Matter movement. Our show aspires to promote social spirituality, which simply means that by coming together, we can solve any of our problems, including the goal of bringing an end to all forms of hate, discrimination, bias, or oppression. We must protect our environment, reform our criminal justice system, and protect every citizen from police brutality. When we come together, it becomes possible to bridge the gaps that plague our society and divide us from within. We the people means everyone. Hello and welcome to the Social Psychic Radio Show. This is Jason Zook. It's a great pleasure that I have Dr. Anthony Weems as a returning special guest on our show today to discuss the important topic of understanding systemic racism in the National Football League. Dr. Weems, is an assistant professor of sports management at Western Carolina University. He's dedicated himself to researching this topic in depth so that we can gain a greater understanding of it and its impact of how racism and prejudice dictate our understanding of our society at large. Since 2016, Colin Kaepernick began kneeling during the national anthem to protest systemic racism and police brutality, and the NFL has become a major focal point for race relations. With George Floyd's murder at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department, the NFL decided to publicly express support for the Black Lives Matter movement by committing approximately $250 million over a 10-year period to fund projects combating racism and supporting the battle against injustice. Part of its new approach, supporting an end to racism by allowing players to affix decals to to their helmets, supporting Black Lives Matter, and to allow teams to display slogans like end racism, and it takes all of us at the end zones during opening games this season. Is this enough? 
when a significant number of the team's owners publicly support President Donald Trump's policies of division. And based on the fact that most of the owners have failed to champion the rights of black players who make up approximately two-thirds of the league, it's with great pleasure that I invite Dr. Weems onto the show to discuss this topic in greater depth at this time. Welcome to the show, Dr. Weems. Yeah, thank you for having me again, Jason. I appreciate it. I think with everything that's going on right now, the more that we can discuss topics like this, the better we will eventually be as a society to gain an increased understanding of what steps we need to take to end racism and prejudice in the NFL and within our society overall. First thing I want to ask you, starting... Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say that I, I absolutely agree. I heard a woman at a protest yesterday say that now is always the right time to fight back against racism. So as much as we can have these conversations and as much as we can really uh, deconstruct this very complex issue, then I say let's go for it. I just appreciate that we have academics like yourself and others that are taking a a leading role in helping us gain understanding of this topic. Because without your work, many of us would be in the dark. And I'm sure that's the way that the league would want it to be. (laughs) I want to ask you First, I want to ask you this. With everything that's going on right now with Jacob Blake and all these other issues that are happening in our society, have you noticed an improvement in race relations within the NFL since George Floyd's murder in June? Or do you believe it's more of a lip service type of exercise? Oh, boy. Um, I mean, even the, the, the term race relations is a very interesting term uh, that we use to talk about racism in the United States. Um, you know, we, we use this term race relations, and, and sometimes you hear racial conflict uh, and things like that, but it has always been white on black or white on indigenous white. It's always been white racism, uh, especially in the United States where we have systemic white racism. I don't think that we've seen any legitimate improvement uh, in and through the NFL. We have seen some, some lip service maybe over the last few months. That does not negate everything that they did, not only in the last four years since Colin Kaepernick first knelt, but it also doesn't negate the entire history of what the league has done and what the league actually stands for and what the owners function as, as a collective group. So no, I, you know, despite whatever little piecemeal solutions they're offering right now, I don't think that we've seen any improvement uh, in this this idea of race relations through the NFL. Interestingly enough, I know you and I had a benefit of a conversation before we did our interview today, and I wanted to ask if you could share with our audience, based on your research, how deep and how far racism, systemic racism in the NFL goes back to its founding <laughs> with Jim Brown in the 1960s and his activism. Yeah, so really, I mean, professional football in the United States, even before uh, the NFL was formally formed, uh, it's always been kind of a clamor, particularly for powerful white men. You know, I think in the early to mid 20th century, you know, U.S. society was heavily segregated. Resources and power, much like today, are, are very segregated uh, and lie in the hands of a predominantly white male elite. So what you saw with kind of the rise of professional football was really this this clamor among the white male elite to really dig their dig their nails into this kind of hold that sport has and would have in American society. Now it, it's really hard to sum up kind of the development of the league over the 20th century. That's that's a whole conversation in itself. But around the the 1960s. 
that's when the NFL really started to crystallize as a, a monopoly-type organization that's entirely exempt from antitrust law. Uh, so you really saw that with the 1961 Sports Broadcasting Act that allowed the league to collectively bargain for media rights as kind of a single operation. But what that did is that gave a lot of a lot more power uh, to the league and to these owners specifically uh, as far as how they impacted, you know, not just sports, but culture, uh, how they impacted media and ultimately how they impact politics. Uh, because one of the main functions of the NFL is to function as a political organization. You know, so the, these owners are not apolitical owners who just happen to enjoy sports as a leisure time activity. Uh, you know, the, these owners are mostly billionaires uh, with very distinct political agendas. Uh, they, most of them own many other organizations, mostly corporations. They have significant ties with sponsors, minority owners, and different aspects like that. And so the function of the league itself is really to feed that political end. Okay, And that political end for all of these owners depends on systemic racism. That's how they got where they are. That's how they got the resources they have, and the routine functioning of their power depends on the maintenance thereof. So what we have seen, especially in the 60s and 70s and after that, is a lot of explicit resistance to this particular group, especially from Black Americans and most visibly through Black athletes. Um, because they are kind of the hyper-visible group within all of this. And so, yeah, Jim Brown was certainly one of the first NFL athletes to really ignite kind of his activism and join forces with other, other activists as far as, you know, Tommy Smith, John Carlos, Muhammad Ali, everyone like that. And then also join forces with major, you know, black political thinkers, uh, whether that was you know, Dr. King, Malcolm X, uh, Stokely Carmichael at the time, who then became Kwame Ture. Uh, so it was really for at least the start of this resistance to, you know, systemic racism in the United States. It was part of a much bigger resistance uh, to racism at large. And that's always been connected for athletes who have decided to speak out. So like a Colin Kaepernick, you know, he, he wasn't doing that out of nowhere. Um, he was doing that as part of a long legacy that was also very informed on his part. He actually worked with Dr. Harry Edwards. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Who was a consultant for the San Francisco 49ers at the time. And Dr. Harry Edwards is largely known as the architect behind the 1968 Mexico Olympics Black Power Salute. Uh, so you, you already have an immediate link to one of the most iconic 
you know, images of resistance in and through sport directly to Kaepernick, which then became kind of the new iconic image of resistance in sport. But it's always been to this system of elite white male dominance, especially in and through the National Football League. That's an interesting point with the history of it. And I know looking at this, the term systemic racism, we would need to look at the system of the NFL and analyze it in a little greater detail. And I wanted to ask if you can give us a short overview about the makeup, the current makeup of the NFL between teams and coaches and owners in terms of race itself. Because my initial understanding of my research for this episode was that two-thirds of all players are African-American. Most, if not all, of the owners are white. And the coaching staff itself is white. And I wanted to get your input on that and see what your findings are, or opinions, I should say, about that great um, makeup of the NFL itself. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a, a pretty good snapshot. Uh, there are a couple minority owners, ra- racial minority, quote-unquote, Shahid Khan for the Jacksonville Jaguars uh, is from Pakistan. And then I believe you have Kim Pagula with the Buffalo Bills. Uh, Her and her husband co-own the team. Um, Her husband kind of takes a lot of the power moves and she kind of takes a lot of the public moves. And we can kind of dissect that kind of approach in and of itself, you know, as to why why they would do that. But what you largely have is an almost exclusively white male ownership. And and that includes majority owners and minority owners. There are a couple other women. The women that are owners in the league got it, got that ownership through familial ties. Okay. Because there was a male or a patriarch in their family that had the team. So I think the Chicago bears are like this uh, with the Hallis and and McCloskey family. You see this with, uh, you know, Seattle Seahawks, you also see it with the New Orleans Saints. And it's a very delicate issue, even with the transfer of ownership to a wife or a daughter uh, or a sister, because anytime there is a transfer of ownership to have three-fourths of the other owners agree on who it gets transferred to. Okay, so again, these elite white men have significant control you know, and, and what the makeup of ownership looks like. And then in contrast to that, you have the actual laborers, so the actual athletes that produce the labor necessary to even have football. And yeah, like you just noted, you know, two-thirds are african American. They've really been pushing the last few years, uh, not just within the league, but there's been some some pressure from outside as well to try to get upper management to really reflect that. Uh, so why isn't that more coaches, you know, are not, are not black? And then I think that there are two head coaches at the moment that are. But with a league that is 66% black, you know, there, there should be more than two coaches. But it's, a, it's an issue of power. You know, you, you will see more, more black coaches in positions of, you know, assistant coaches or coordinator positions, but especially not the head coach position. And so that always gets to who is hiring, what are they doing for the hiring process, what are they looking for, 
different things like that. And so that almost gets directly to the owner or president and the general manager, who is kind of their right-hand man to execute the mission for the franchise. It's a very, it's not as detached as people think. It's kind of right in front of everyone's faces as far as players, coaches, administration, and kind of the C-suite level, the executives. So it's not as, as tall and removed as we might think it is as an organizational structure. There, there has been a lot of pressure to continue to diversify top management. There's been some very poor, you know, early in the 2000s, they came up with what is known as the Rooney Rule, which Rooney himself was a white male owner uh, who came up with the idea. So wait, way to pat himself on the back with that one, where they had to, for head coaching positions, they had to interview at least one racial minority candidate. Um, now, this has long been hailed as a very progressive move for the NFL. The problem is it never led to any real change. So you were able to have the NFL, you know, tout this progressive move that even other sports leagues hadn't done yet. Uh, you, were, you were able to have them market that move for almost two decades now with little to no impact whatsoever, and especially when it comes to, you know, top management. So it's still very much an issue, and we definitely have to keep the pressure on. Uh, there, there's a lot of work to be done when it comes to diversifying NFL franchises. You know, hearing you explain this to me and just through my own independent research on this topic, I, I don't want to use a cultural anecdote, but I feel like you're Morpheus and I'm Neo and you're telling me that I could take the blue pill, <laughs> wake up in my bed and believe whatever I want about racism in the NFL, or as an audience, we could collectively take the red pill and see the reality of what we're contending against. I, interestingly enough, uh, you mentioned how the league is, the teams are individually, some of them are trying to hire and have diversity in their upper echelons. And one of the articles I came across dealt with the Jacksonville Jaguars, and they named Tanisha Tate to a new VP of social responsibility and impact role. I believe that was as of yesterday. And she'll be the first black woman to take a VP position in the NFL. And her role is really going to be to create programming and executing the organization's social responsibility to inspire you, you know, respect and unity within their players and the local community. I want to ask, have you found other teams that are doing what the Jacksonville Jaguars are accomplishing at this point? Or is this one of those few isolated incidents of an attempt at progressive action within the team itself in the league? I, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. So, so that, that is a tall order. You know, first of all, that, that is, it is great for her. That is, that is an incredible position, well-earned. I think it's important for us to also understand what the NFL is doing when they hire someone into this position. So th this, is, this has actually become a trend in sports in general, both in professional sports and in college sports, to hire, you know, VPs of diversity um, or whatever they, they particularly call it, where the inequitable organization hires someone and just says, fix it. You know, as, as if the organization itself isn't fundamentally racist. Uh, and that kind of gets back to this uh, Victor Ray's notion of racialized organization. 
you can't just bring someone in and they're going to fix your organization if the organization itself is racist. Uh, now that gets all the way to, you know, the, the structure of authority, the hierarchy, the power within that hierarchy, how it's distributed, the function of the organization, the mission, everything kind of emanates from a racist core. So when you bring someone in, it's important to also understand, you know, are they a line administrator? And what I mean by that is, are they considered to be a main employee and administrator of the organization? Or are they more of a side position? Okay, because line positions have authorities. They have decision-making authority and what they do reverberates through the organization. Whereas side positions, they don't necessarily get authority. They, they're tasked with a very tall order, but they don't have the authority to really ch change and reshape the organization from top to bottom. So that will be interesting to see moving forwards, how that plays out and what kind of power is really delegated to people hired to these positions. They have a, a very tough task ahead of them. And the, the, the interesting part is if, if they do their job and succeed and really create a better culture, which again is a very tall order, but if they can somehow succeed, then who looks better? The owner, the franchise, and the NFL. But if they fail at this almost impossible task, uh, then it kind of justifies everything right? Then you can get rid of them or, or you can even market that you were trying and it's still seen as a progressive move. But, you know, then you have people coming in financially analyzing, you know, that it was a waste of money and, and things like that. Uh, whereas it should be a foundational core value for, for operating an organization. Almost like a possible so deniability. <laughs> Where they could yeah. they could try to be dismissive about the efforts of of integrating the NFL and eradicating these systemic problems, <laughs> right? Because this is this is what they've done. They they have now hired someone to integrate it for them. And if that mm. person can't do it, then by golly, they've done all they can, you know. And and that's the way that they frame it because these particular people, the, these these owners, they don't know how <laughs> to to create something that's equitable that's not in that's not in their their code right that's not how they were socialized that's not who they are that's not their character structure they don't have the resources to create something that is equitable and so that's a that's a foundational problem with something like the nfl is structurally as a league and as 32 individual franchises the whole thing is emanating from this, for lack of a better word, this deficient kind of, of owner um, where they have power, but they don't, they don't know how to, how to do all of the other stuff. And because of that, they have created this league over the course of decades that is focused solely on power accumulation. And that power accumulation is also focused on systemic racism. So they're going to have a very tough task trying to address systemic racism with the routine function of the NFL. Just for our audience's purposes, there are what, approximately 32 teams in the country right now? Mm -hmm. Out of those teams, all of them are governed by the NFL personal conduct policy. Is that right? That is correct. 
And from my review of the policy, it says everyone, and we'll, like, we'll put some emphasis on everyone who's a part of the league must refrain from quote unquote conduct detrimental to the integrity and public confidence in the NFL. Reason for bringing that up to you, there's a double standard there because from my review of it, the owners such as Woody Johnson, Jerry Richardson, Robert Kraft, just to name a few, have done certainly atrocious things in their personal conduct over the years. And I wanted to see if you could talk about how the league polices its own owners, if that's the term you want to use. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a, a good term, as odd as it may sound, because that's actually written into the responsibilities for the commissioner of, of the NFL. So the, the commissioner, who is now Roger Goodell, has the power to really enforce, you know, that, that, that conduct policy. And that applies to players and owners. So the commissioner has the power to kind of police the brand of the NFL and really kind of hand out punishments based on behavior that are deemed detrimental to the brand. What we see is this disproportionate punishing of players and their conduct and controlling of players and a very, very lax attitude towards owners with almost no real reprimand. There are some things that happen sometimes where he may suspend an owner for attending a couple of games. I don't know what that necessarily does because the owner still owns the franchise and the franchise still plays the game. And if they win, they win. And, you know, money's still flowing. There's still political impact, ideological impact. So the game continues for the owners. Whereas if a player is suspended, they're losing out on checks. They're not getting paid. Uh, they could get suspended, you know, for a whole season, depending on the, the kind of infraction, depending on if it was their second or third infraction. At that point, that increases punishment. And so that, that's an issue in itself. Piece that's tied to that, again, you have the hyper-visibility of players. So any time a player does anything, you know, it's going to be blown up in the media. Um, especially sport media, which these owners have a significant stake in sport media outlets. And what you will very rarely see is discussion of ownership in sport media. It's very eerie, almost as if they've gotten the talk to never approach that subject. Uh, because, you know, outlets like ESPN, Fox Sports, whatever it is, they depend on the NFL, right? So the NFL and other sport leagues, they produce content for ESPN, Fox Sports, NBC Sports, things like that, CBS, and they desperately need that content. So they will not do anything to really jeopardize, you know, the, the image of the owners, and they won't really go above and beyond to try to hold owners accountable. But if a player does anything, that's going to be front page news. And so C is this, this disproportionate punishing of players, which kind of reinforces this idea of the deviant athlete, and especially in the NFL, where you have two-thirds of the players are black, it really reinforces this notion of a deviant and even criminalized black male, which extends well beyond the sporting sphere and has really been a trope in, for systemic racism as long as America has been around, kind of creating this image of the deviant of the deviant black man. 
so so that's that's a, a major issue as far as how conduct is policed by the NFL. Interesting side note to that when you mentioned how players are penalized for their actions in terms of this controversy, and then you got the owners. And I just wanted to point out two couple things. One, Woody Johnson, the owner of the Jets. I know that the ownership of his team has since been transferred to his brother while he's the ambassador to the United Kingdom under the Trump administration. However, mm-hmm. he's still involved with the Jets. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so, and I mean, it is his, wow. it is his team. And so that, that's one of the major things. I mean, he was even kind of, you know, before he became ambassador, uh, he was one of the financial managers for one of the for one of Trump's campaigns. So you see kind of this, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back kind of mentality within this white male elite, where because he did that for Trump and financially supported him and everything else, he then becomes ambassador to, to the UK, uh, which he was named, you know, right after Trump got elected. And of course, what that then does is then allow Woody Johnson to expand their business. A, allows kind of access into that market for, you know, Johnson & Johnson, which is the company that, that, that they own, big-time medical company. And then it also continues to justify kind of this NFL expansion into England, uh, specifically the London area. Um, so now it, it's probably more likely to be the Jets. And you can look at Shahid Khan's dealings in London, if you would like, because he, he's been making a lot of moves to really kind of cement himself within, the, you know, the London scene. I believe he and his son are part owners of Fulham FC as well. So they've been making a lot of moves to, to not just, you know, get the NFL expanded over there, but the slew of corporate interests that come with the NFL. So again, it's important to think about the league itself more so as kind of a battering ram uh, for this overall political and economic front. And in fact, uh, Rupert Murdoch, you know, the the owner of News Corp, he has he has publicly called uh, sport with an emphasis on football his battering ram to get into new markets. So sport is kind of the Trojan horse. Everyone likes sport. Everyone consumes sport. So you give them football. But then with football comes everything else that these owners are trying to do. I'm looking at Woody Johnson, for example. I know as he's the current ambassador to UK, there's some allegations against him right now that he's made some racist and sexist comments while being an ambassador in the United Kingdom. And that raises so many levels of concern because he's an ambassador representing our government to one of our greatest allies. And just in terms of the lack of, I would say, his tone deafness to to race relations is scary. And then you have one of his players, Jamal Adams, been shown that he called him out particular actions. And then the Jets, they traded him to the Seattle Seahawks. Mm -hmm. At least those are the allegations based on, you know, the facts. And I wanted to see, do you have enough, that, that I think represents exactly what we're talking about, that double standard of enforcement. Do you find that a lot of the owners of the teams are aware of their privilege and that they ignore social tones and boundaries in terms of how they treat their players and 
their viewpoints in terms of their expression of these topics publicly? Are they aware? I would say that they are acutely aware, more than aware. <laughs> um, you know, when, when we think of awareness of privilege, we think of kind of the average white male um, or white person coming to understand themselves within a larger racial context. These particular kinds of men, these very, very elite white men, have been trained a certain way since birth. I mean, these, these are not like new money folk. You know, these are legacy kids. I mean, the Chicago Bears franchise has been in that family for four or five generations now. This is how these people navigate the world. This is how Woody Johnson was taught to navigate the world. The systems that he is reproducing is what he depends on. It's what he has always depended on. It's what his family has depended on. The, the wealth that they have generated depends on something like systemic racism. So, you know, when, when it comes out that he's going to the UK and, and, and saying racist things, that's right on brand because the NFL is in the business of exporting systemic racism. Uh, and this is something that is really difficult to, to understand a sport organization doing. But because that is the function of, you know, these ownership groups, and that is what the league is designed as, owners are concerned with the exportation of systemic racism, because that is one of the primary modes for the accumulation of power and wealth, uh, at least for them. That's how, that's how it always has been. That is the, the capital that they know. And so, yeah, it's interesting that, you know, that they, they trade uh adams was it yes i just came across um, so that in my you know, research and so that that, that they traded adams. him to to seattle which is on the other side of the country what you a recently chilling effect, saw huh? that <laughs> yeah yeah so it completely right? removed you him speak from out the, against the market your owner that he had you're going to go to the other side of the country <laughs> and, and that happened too with um michael bennett who has been one of the more mm. outspoken players uh in recent years he really started, you know, when he was on the Seattle Seahawks, uh, he was one of the first players to kneel as well um, with, with Colin Kaepernick uh, and, and Eric Reed. I think those two were the first, and then Michael Bennett was the third, and he was on a different team uh, with the Seattle Seahawks. And then shortly after that, they, trade, they traded Michael Bennett to the Philadelphia Eagles. So he went from wow. Seattle to Philly. Um, so, again, you had this, this transfer to the other side of the country, totally different market, totally different time zone. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very interesting thing that these players get traded and that owners just kind of get rid of these players on a whim. Uh, I mean, you even saw it with, uh, you know, a, a, few, a couple of years ago uh, when Robert McNair was still the owner of the Houston Texans. He was saying that he didn't want he was essentially barring the franchise from signing any players that had kneeled. So you're even yeah. saying like a refusal to engage with any kind of progressive discussion, you know, and, and all they had to do from the beginning of this was understand that Colin Kaepernick was talking about a very real issue that I'm pretty sure at this point in time, everyone understands was pretty accurate. If you go back and look at any of Colin Kaepernick's speeches, you're like, wow, this man is, is speaking with a, a very sobering clarity on this topic right now. And a lot of white Americans weren't ready to hear that 
owners, it's not that they weren't ready to hear it, it's that they don't want to hear it. Uh, and so that's long been an issue. And you can even go back and look at owners in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you know, really trying to progressive movement of their players. I can't remember which owner it was off the top of my head in the 1970s, but there was a player who was reading Elijah Muhammad's message to the black man. So this was right on the heels, you know, of the civil rights movement, the rise of the black power movement, and kind of right after major civil rights legislation was passed. Uh, and this gentleman is reading this, this book on the plane, and the owner said something to him uh, that was pretty racist, talking about how he needed to to get rid of that book. So this kind of policing of racial, even racial identity and racial politics by owners uh, has been a very active process for, for NFL owners for a long time. Um, so this isn't their first foray into this topic and they're not just aware of it this is what they do uh, and that's a very scary thing to think about one last side note <laughs> i wanted to compare jamal adams just as an example to how the league is actually well there's an example i found here of how they handled jerry richardson of the carolina panthers he was fined mm -hmm. by the nfl after an investigation confirmed accusations detailed in a sports illustrated report that Richardson settled mm -hmm. complaints of racist and sexist comments to employees with big payouts and non-disclosure agreements. What I found shocking about that, the league fined Richardson $2.75 million approximately, but eventually he sold the team for $2.2 billion. What <laughs> damage is that really doing to Richardson? Yeah, no, it's, uh, and this is something that I've talked about for a while. It's a payout is what it is. Um, there, there is no punishment, right? So this is the idea. It's like, oh, he was forced to give up his franchise. We're talking about a guy who is probably ready to be done uh, with that anyways. He, he's pretty old. Um, <laughs> he, his legacy has already been built because he has the power to do so. Uh, he's already significantly shaped the political climate of not just you know, North Carolina, but much of the United States with his kind of involvement. Uh, so to give him that kind of payout is utterly insane. I, I don't, I don't know a better descriptor for that. I mean, you, you see it, you know, even in a progressive league like the NBA, whenever they forced Donald Sterling, the former owner of the Los Angeles Clippers, to sell his team, it was painted as a very progressive move. Like, yay, we won't tolerate, you know, that kind of racism here. And then he sells the franchise for billions of dollars. Uh, and and that, that, that is the power that is afforded to, to these people, that even when they mess up, they win. Whereas we have yeah. people in the streets right now that make one wrong move and they're getting murdered. Exactly. Uh, and that, that's a very stark difference in, in experience in the United States. And that is what people are talking about when they talk about systemic racism. It's this kind of stark different along racial, economic, and gender lines. I'll ask you this. Who polices the owners? I think we mentioned this earlier. The commissioner, right? Roger Goodell? Mm -hmm. So it, it is the job of the commissioner to police the owners. <laughs> now, who manages how does him? he do so? That, that, that's the big question. It is, who manages him is, a, is an interesting topic. So he has the power and the authority to 
you know, police the owners. That, that it's his job um, as the commissioner of the league. But it is the owners themselves who vote the commissioner into that position. So it's in the interest of the commissioner, whoever the commissioner it is, to to never ruffle the feathers of the people who are going to vote to reelect you into that position. So that's why you see such a, a minimal, minimal effort to really police ownership. And if anything, you see, you know, someone like Roger Goodell really struggling over how to force uh, everything else to align with the, the owner's interest, um, because that's what he is paid to do. So it's very much like a CEO, uh, you know, what a CEO would do for a company and how they really answer to kind of a, a board members. And so you have this board of, of, the, of, the, of the majority ownership groups that select uh, the person who will then police them, but they know that that's a farce from the very beginning. I want to ask you this. You and I had a really interesting conversation before we got on the air yesterday, and it really surprised me to think of the NFL, because when anyone watches a game, they're watching it passively. They're not thinking of the dynamics of who's on the team, what role the players have, whether or not race factors into that as well. But when you were talking to me yesterday, and I want to share this with the audience, if you can tell, the, if you can explain the difference between racial stacking and racial tasking and how that plays into mm-hmm. understanding the dynamic of systemic racism in the NFL, I think that'll help our audience look at this a little deeper. Right, right. And I, I really owe a lot of my thoughts on this topic, Trevor Bopp at the University of Florida. Um, so he's a, a brilliant young scholar and professor in, in the field of sport management. So racial stacking uh, is something that has kind of been around for a while as a, as a concept, at least, and certainly as a, as a practice in something like the NFL. So racial stacking uh, is whenever players of certain races are kind of pigeonholed into certain positions, okay? And this happens even very early on, I mean, even in mm-hmm. youth football. Uh, this happens to a kid where, you know, a young black kid might walk up and a white coach will immediately say, running back, wide receiver, uh, defensive back, you know, these kinds of positions. Uh, Whereas, you know, a young white kid might get quarterback, you know, or middle linebacker, a kind of leadership type position. And so you really saw that reflected in the NFL for a very long time. You know, it, it was a, it was pretty, it was almost revolutionary when you had the first black quarterback uh, in the NFL. And now of course you have kind of a real dominance, you know, the Cam Newton winning an MVP, you have Patrick Mahomes winning an MVP, a Super Bowl. It's kind of a, a heyday for right now. It was interesting though, because once that change happened, what you also saw was the, the rise of technology in the game. So at, at that point, by the time coaches and GMs and owners allowed, quote unquote, black quarterbacks to play on their team, it coincided with the time that they could put earpieces into their helmets so that the coaches could talk to them during the game. So there was this whole dynamic, you know, of, of the, the intellectual side and, and whether or not they were intellectually fit to lead coming from coaches and owners. And this was a very real 
thing. This was something that they openly talked about. So that's kind of disrupted some, at least, of, of racial stacking as now players are starting to get into more non-traditional positions. Racial tasking, however, really kind of addresses the other side of this. And this is a lot of the work that, that Dr. Trevor Bopp has done. So racial tasking is looking at, okay, so now even if you have a quarterback of different races or a running back of different races, et cetera, or a receiver of different races, what are they tasked with doing when they're in that position? Okay, so, you know, you have a quarterback like Deshaun Watson, who is an amazing football player, won a national championship in college. He's a leader, a great quarterback, but he needs to be mobile. He, he needs wow. to be fast and, and, and kind of so they design their offense around this idea of the mobile quarterback. And so you see, you see that with how, you know, the actual job tasks are assigned to different people within different positions. Um, so slot receivers, you know, they need to be very, if they're white, they need to be very crafty, uh, smart. And this is talked about as well in, in sport media too. That's a whole different problem as far as how we talk about players you know or you have the outside receiver who's black that might need to be faster and more dominant than you know like a deandre hopkins uh kind of a player so but all of that kind of comes from even the the coaches and gm's perspective which again is emanating from a white person so this is, hmm. uh, I know we talked about the white racial frame before, but this, this frame that white people have is that, well, black people should be faster. And this is as racist as it is and as fundamentally false as it's been proven, that will be reinforced in the organizational setting. And of course, if it's reinforced, that's what you're going to see. So it is very difficult for kind of the, the casual fan to see that because that's what we get. Of course, DeAndre Hopkins is, you know, faster and more dominant. He's one of the best receivers in the NFL. You know, of, of, of course, Andrew Luck, before he retired, was a great leader and a great quarterback. You know, all, all of those different kinds of narratives then spin out uh, of, of the league. And those narratives also reproduce those same ideas. Um, so it, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic, but you have to look at who are the major decision makers uh, behind both racial tasking and racial stacking. Uh, and that is an overwhelmingly white men for decades. Here is the irony of this conversation today. Literally, we're just touching at the tip of the iceberg of what we discussed in this topic. And this episode is going by so quickly because of, of the interest in this. And just there's so much to talk about. I do want to ask you this, because we're going to wind this down in a few minutes. What can we do to address systemic racism in the NFL, I think would be most effective in terms of an approach as a society to address these issues. Cancel the NFL, I guess. <laughs> um, <laughs> so as far as uh, probably, I mean, what we have seen, especially in, in recent years, there is power in putting pressure on sponsors. It's not the end all be all, but we can force change that way because money talks. These people care about power and money. So money is certainly tied to power, but they are also different. But money is a big factor in power. So if you can pressure 
these corporate sponsors enough, you can force change. And we talked about that recently, you know, with FedEx and the Washington football team, even even though the founder and, and owner of FedEx is also a minority owner of the Washington football team. Either way, that, that corporate pressure created some sense of change. And that's something that we really have to do. As far as maybe what we can do more immediately to kind of get to that point where we're able to collectively pressure these organizations, I think education is, is kind of a foundational aspect here. And I'm a, I'm a little biased as an educator, but I think what we run into is a, is a lot of people don't know this about the NFL. You know, you were kind of talking about this earlier that, you know, when people tune into a game, they're just kind of passively watching the game. But very, very few people tune into an NFL game or buy tickets to an NFL game and understand you know, that the excess revenue that's being given to them is going towards certain political candidates across the country at the federal, state, and local levels to advance a particular political front. Um, so people don't think about their engagement with the NFL as being wholly political. And it's a very difficult thing to do because sport has such a special place in our hearts. You know, I wrestle with this all the time as both a sport fan and, and a sport scholar. But one of the first things that we really have to do is educate people. What is the function of the NFL? What do owners do? Where does that money go? And with that, then people start to understand whether or not they want to support football, aside from the increasingly known dangers of the sport. And that's a whole different topic. But do we even politically support the existence of the organization? Because it seems to be going against almost all of us. So kind of understa understanding where we fit uh, in that and educating people on that aspect is probably the single most important thing we can do right now. And then we can move towards kind of better, larger, more effective kind of programs. What I'm looking at, my independent observation of this, it's taking them, it's taking the NFL decades to do these incremental changes, you know, putting lettering on the end zone or allowing players to wear a decal to support Black Lives Matter isn't going to go very far when you think about the systemic inequities really cutting at the heart at everything we're discussing today. And from my vantage point, <laughs> the NFL should change their end zone sayings. Instead of it saying it takes all of us, they should say it's going to take forever <laughs> to integrate the NFL and, and address racism and systemic problems because there's nothing that I'm hearing from our conversation that shows a true interest on the owner's part, on Roger Goodell's part, to actually change things. And one of the things I want to ask you moving forward, if we were to use a football analogy, we're on the zero yard line on the opposite team's zone, end zone, and we've got to get down to the other side. How long do you think it's going to take her here? I mean, you know, foundationally, this is an intergenerational project. So this, this fight has been going on well before I came into this world, and it will be going on well after I leave this world. Mm. The point is, I think, and Derek Bell talks about this with his philosophy of racial realism, is that there is meaning in the fight. 
as as daunting as this can seem, as impossible as it might be, there is meaning in trying to gain that yardage, to use that analogy. So, you know, in, in the course of generations, we might only get a few inches out of that 100-yard field. But those few inches are worth it. If, if we can make life better for even a couple of people, that is worth it. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't, it's, I would say that there, there's been a lot of work that's already been done. Uh, so this is by no means the beginning, but we're also nowhere near the end. So we just have to keep going. If anything, I, we're, we're right at the 50 yard line. Um, so there's, like said, there's been a lot of great, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're moving into enemy territory right now. And uh, I think you see that with kind of the, the overall fragility and the kind of need to react to anti-racist movement right now, which is interesting. If someone says that they're anti-racist and you see them as being against you, then what does that say about you? Yeah, you know, I, I think that progress has already been made. Our job is just to continue that progress. We may not get there. But there is meaning in doing so. And so that, that's kind of the fight that we have to wrestle with right now. It's a very existential fight. I want to ask you, as we, as we wrap this interview up, and thank you so much for making your time to come on today and share your views with our audience. What do you think, aside from the economic argument that we're making about changing things and switching up the ability of the league to police itself and actually take real stands on issues that leave an impact, how do you view the politics of all this? Because we're going into an election cycle right now that's probably going to be one of the most decisive elections in our nation's history. And I wanted to ask you, in terms of the owners and their support of Trump and the players and the disconnect in, in terms of the system itself, what role do you think politics is going to play in the, in the near future and the long term with handling these kind of issues in a sensitive and effective manner? What a, what a big question to, to end on. <laughs> I, think, I mean, politics has always been at the center of the NFL. As much as people, you know, especially white people, hated Kaepernick for, for quote-unquote, bringing politics to their living room, that's what the NFL always is and has been. Um, so we saw that, you know, right after 9-11 when the NFL tried to take, you know, the front-running position and kind of reestablishing a new American identity, believe that they were the first sporting event ever designated as a national security sporting event or as a national security special event where the Secret Service ran security details, the FBI helps run security, and now every Super Bowl since then has been designated a national security special event, which that has actually contributed significantly to the increasing militarization of cities around the United States, because that's what they do is they go in and they beef up all these local departments with anti-terror gear, which then have no one else to use that gear on other than the public. And we have seen that in recent months. Um, so sports play, especially the NFL, plays a central role uh, in this political system. So it is politics, critical role in this particular political season going into the election and even beyond. I think that they will continue their image, but try very hard as much as they can to walk the line, quote unquote, because they don't want to out themselves too much, I guess. They want to try to keep whatever middle of the road stands they can, but it'll be 
really interesting because their, their political damage has already been done, you know, generating this kind of white nationalist culture. Uh, you can read the work of Kyle Coos for that. He talks a lot about this development with the NFL uh, culturally. But it'll be really interesting to see where it goes from here. How, how, do, how does the political system justified and rationalized beyond this moment? So it's a, it's a difficult task that we have ahead of us, but our job individually and collectively uh, is to, to keep fighting the good fight as best as we can. Uh, and, you know, these, these, these owners, these elites, they're going to do what they're going to do. It's our job to, to really kind of expose that and fight back against it. Dr. Williams, I'll ask you this. What do you have coming up? If you'd like to share with our audience any other projects or just in general with this topic, do you, you know, is there anything you'd like to share about things you're going to be coming up for yourself in terms of your focus on this area? Yeah, I actually got a couple of things. So I'm, I'm working on a book right now on NFL owners. Uh, so <laughs> this is actually based off of my doctoral dissertation. Uh, where I look at the political economy of NFL ownership, kind of what the character structure of of an owner is. So who are they, and how do they how do they operate in relation to these larger social structures that we have, and how do they reproduce this this elite white male dominant system? Um, so that's something that gets kind of very heavy into their political engagement. Um, so that. That's kind of first and foremost on the docket for me. It's a it's a big project, Excellent. but luckily the the, le- the legwork has been done with my dissertation. When also, you get, we yeah. I was gonna say also Go we ahead. just uh, launched we just launched an organization called the Sporting Justice Collective, and so this collective is a group of scholars, activists, athletes, and practitioners really focused on anti-racism and decolonization in and through sport. So, you know, this is an ever developing fight, I think, you know, it's never about just kind of standing there and saying, I disagree or something like that. We get creative too. And so I think that that's important to understand is that this is developmental for all of us, no matter where we are in the system, maybe we're just kind of learning as a casual fan, Uh, but this is a very developmental process. So certainly for me, uh, things are going to continue to develop uh, with the oh, book, with the Sporting out. Justice Collective, and everything mm-hmm. that, that comes from, you know, those. Where, where it goes from there, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but that's kind of what's on my docket Dr. right Weems? now. I think you might have us muted. Hello? I think we might have lost Dr. Weems for our purposes. I'd like to thank Dr. Weems for coming on today and sharing his information with us because it is that critically important as a society that we – have an opportunity to look at this issue critically, to consider it from the vantage point of being neutral and really taking off our glasses and seeing things for what they are. In this particular situation, I believe there's a lot that sheds light on how we can approach systemic racism in the NFL. We can take positive steps now to recognize have a dialogue, and increase our understanding of what we need to do now to address these issues. It troubles me deeply to see that owners of these teams can take such a direct position antithetical to supporting two-thirds of the players in the league. 
two-thirds of our players are currently African-American, yet our owners of these teams support policies that go completely against the rights of those players. The system itself within the NFL, we have Roger Goodell, who's the NFL commissioner. He should take on a much stronger role as a referee within the system itself. His lip service to wanting to correct things on the surface by indicating, for example, recently during a interview with former linebacker Emmanuel Echo's uncomfortable uncomfortable conversations with a black man that was a podcast that Roger Goodell recently appeared on, and he expressed remorse for his handling and treatment of Colin Kaepernick and the take a knee movement. Expressing remorse is not enough. The owners of the league have to be held accountable for their actions. When they say something or when they, they do something that runs contrary to what our system would tolerate in terms of racial sensitivity and promoting equality, the owners should be called out and made an example under the NFL personal conduct policy. Because anyone that's a part of the league must refrain from conduct detrimental to the integrity and public confidence in the NFL. Those words are strong. Detrimental to the integrity and public confidence in the NFL. Think about those words for a minute. When you have Woody Johnson or Jerry Richardson or any of these other owners supporting Donald Trump, when you have the system itself, such as Stephen Ross of the Miami Dolphins, the owner of the Dolphins, announcing recently that he would commit $13 million over four years to rise a nonprofit he created in 2015 to address systemic racism and inequality. It sounds great on the surface, but when you look at the fact that this same individual was a host of some posh fundraisers for Donald Trump in the Hamptons, which raised $12 million, what are we looking at right now? in terms of the overall impact of the owners and the system itself. Look at Colin Kaepernick. He was strong in his position as an activist for this particular issue, and he was blacklisted, blackballed, and still continues to be unable to play within the NFL. There are certain things that are happening that are positive. The Jacksonville Jaguars appointing Ms. Tate to the new VP social responsibility and impact role within its organization. You've got one of the things we didn't even get the chance to talk about today, the Players Coalition, which is a players-led group that focuses on legislative measures and other steps to fight systemic racism. These initiatives, these individuals are important in the conversation of increasing inclusivity within our league and within our society. As I mentioned earlier, Dr. Ween is a trailblazer. He and his colleagues who are working closely to bring our attention to these issues through their research and study of these particular facts and just looking at what he's doing in terms of his independent work helps us to become better informed. You have a choice, members of our audience. You can take the blue pill and believe whatever you want, or you can take a red pill and start viewing reality for what it is. There is systemic racism in the NFL. It's not an issue that can be negated or argued or debated. It's real. Whether or not you choose to accept that is gonna be your own process. I'm gonna to continue to have conversations like this on our show, not because it's easy, but because it's necessary. I wanna thank Dr. Wing for his work and support of this podcast and helping us with presenting this information to each of you. In terms of what you can do individually, the mighty dollar says a lot. We can support initiatives that make true 
lasting change. There is a concept of small wins, like Dr. Weems mentioned. If it helps to improve, if our actions help to improve even the life and the quality of life for a few African-Americans within the league and our society, then that's a victory. And I agree with that. But I also think when you have our citizens being killed and maimed and injured just because of the color of their skin, their economic status in our society, and other variables that should never be considered. More needs to be done now. This is an urgent issue. It really does need to be addressed. We're going to continue to provide programming as we, as we go forward. I want to thank each of you for tuning into this episode. Dr. Weems, I believe, had technical difficulties. Nonetheless, he shared an immense amount of his knowledge and wealth of understanding today. I'll agree with two things about the NFL right now. Their slogans end racism, and it takes all of us. They're right. It does take all of us. We do need to end racism. But more importantly, we've got to look at and trace how deep racism goes within the system of the NFL. And we've got to really take steps now to confront the owners of the league who are failing in their obligations and duties to everyone through their actions and insensitivity. I hope you continue to support the show. Thank you for tuning in. Until next time, stay safe, be happy, focus on these issues because together we can truly make a difference. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Social Psychic Radio Show. Don't forget to join us for another episode next time. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give us a review on iTunes. You can also check us out on Facebook and don't forget to visit the Social Psychic YouTube channel. Until next time, it's a big world out there. Keep an open mind, embrace your paradigms, and know that the universe is always yours to explore. With the Baker's Plus Card, it's easy to get lower than low prices. For the win! Earn fuel points on every purchase and save up to a dollar a gallon at the pump. The Baker's Plus Card. All you do is win. Big, big savings. Sign up now at bakersplus.com and start saving. Baker's. Fresh for everyone. Savings may vary by state. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your favorites with the buy five or more, save a dollar each sale. Simply buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with your card. Bakers, fresh for everyone. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement. Inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey, it's Tim from 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys, the comedy podcast you had no idea you needed. Join Ben, Jeff, and me as we continue our musical road trip back through the years and around the globe. See, just when you thought all white guys were like Joe Rogan, you come across three educators trying to remember when we were cool. 50 Years of Music with 50-Year-Old White Guys. Electric Ass.